Over the last couple of weeks, we've been in Jerusalem and, and Damascus. And today we, we travel a little bit further west. We were in Cyprus. And we have the, the crystal clear turquoise waters, the powdery white sand between our toes, and the beach that stretches into the nice hot sun. Oh, what could be? But then Paul's day, the same beaches were there. There's many of the same difficulties. The main export was olive oil, as is the case for a good part of today as well. Interesting history in the past as well as currently history. But Cyprus had not really been independent for, for many years at all. It had lots of different rulers. And here's a lovely gift to give somebody that you love. There came the Roman rule just 60 years before Jesus was born. And it was gifted by Julius Caesar to Cleopatra for a short time as well. So maybe some of us have our work cut out for our next Christmas present or birthday present for someone that we love. But Cyprus is a place, it's a, it's a pagan land. It's got temples at this time to Zeus and Aphrodite. Aphrodite, the, the goddess of love. She has a massive cult following until about AD 391, whenever the Romans decides enough's enough. Aphrodite apparently was born there. And of course, as we see in this passage, there are obviously some Jews in this island of Cyprus as well. What we are going to think about in this passage, as God's word continues to speak in the face of opposition. For here, in many of the cities where Paul will find himself, there's going to be very clear opposition. And Cyprus is one of the unusual places, because Paul doesn't have to do a runner. In most other places, they end up in a rat or being let down a rope in the night time. But Cyprus, they're maybe not so keen to get rid of Paul. But there's clearly very little fruit from their venture as well. So God's word speaks in the face of opposition. Whether it be in Cyprus 2,000 years ago. Or even as we face opposition in our families. Or in our community in Clark and Seaford as well. God's word will continue to, to speak. God's word is effective. It's the only means that people can hear the word of God. Because it is God's word. And God speaks to us through it. So as we work our way through this passage, it'll rhyme us tonight. First thing is commission. Commission. Verses 1 to 3, we're not quite in Cyprus yet. But here, Paul and Barnabas are going to be commissioned. They're going to be entrusted with the authority of of Christ's church to, to go and tell people about Jesus. Just as Jesus told us the apostles, his disciples, to, to go and tell people about Jesus, as the church we, we tell people about Jesus, here in a very particular way, Paul and Barnabas, who have been in Antioch for a period of time, they've been preaching, they've been teaching, they've been visiting, they've been encouraging people through God's word, they've been discipling people in their faith, and they've done this for a number of years. And they're in this local church, along with other leaders, and they're listed there in verses 1 and 2. People from, from different backgrounds, and these are all the leaders who are in charge of the teaching aspect of it. It's not quite set up in the eldership yet. These are all teachers who are splitting up the, the work here. And they're prophets and teachers. And the local church here, they have the, this, this leadership, this group of men and they're praying. And their praying eventually leads to sending. Isn't that right? They're worshipping the Lord. They're praying. They're fasting. And the Holy Spirit speaks to them. And their praying leads to sending Paul and Barnabas. 
Lord says, set them Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And they, they do that. They, they set apart Paul and Barnabas, whose real name was Joseph, do you remember? He's the, he's the encourager. And we know that from Acts 4. But where is Barnabas from or where's Joseph from? Remember last week Paul went back to the Hellenists to, to tell them, you know, you're wrong about our scripture, of, uh, you know, the, our Old Testament understanding. There's Jesus is the fulfillment. Paul goes back. Well, we're in Cyprus tonight, so where do you think Barnabas is from? He's going to go back home. He's from Cyprus as well. And these are our first missionaries that are sent by the local church. In Acts 1 and verse 8, Jesus is speaking, and it's really the outline for the whole book of Acts, that the Holy Spirit's upon them, and they're to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. And up to chapter 7, we find ourselves in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 to 12, we have a movement from Judea to Samaria. And chapter 13, we're beginning to go to the ends of the earth. And Cyprus is not a million miles away, but it's the beginnings of the gospel going to the ends of the earth. And here God commissions Paul and Barnabas through his church. Because that is where he dwells, isn't it? God dwells in us, his people, by his spirit. And God, these Paul and Barnabas are commissioned. They are sent by God through the church. How is it done? Verse 3. They're laying their hands upon them. For service to, to go into the mission field. It's an Old Testament picture of the laying on of hands, isn't it? And we think of it as a new te- it's an Old Testament picture. What's it a picture of? It's a picture of the priest laying his hands on the sacrifice before it's slaughtered or to send the scapegoat into the wilderness. So what's the picture for Paul and Barnabas here? They're going to be living sacrifices for the Lord. This is a serious thing that they're doing. And they're going to be sent out as these living sacrifices as they are commissioned to tell people about Jesus. So very quickly we have that they're commissioned and then that leads them ultimately to their mission. Verses 4 and 5. They, they have this journey to Cyprus. And this short sailing really, maybe a day or two. And in chapter 9, verse 31, the, the church, remember, it enjoyed a period of peace because Saul was converted. And in chapter 10, it's a wonderful chapter where the gospel is not just for Jews, but it's for Gentiles. And Peter has a, a vision and the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles like, a, like another type of Pentecost. But in chapter 11, the persecution returns again. And now here, Paul and Barnabas, as the persecution starts to ramp up, as people continue to be converted, despite the opposition, they're going to be sent on this mission. And it continues as we would expect. It's the same pattern through the book of Acts and into Paul's letters as well, where Paul and Barnabas go wherever they go, and they go to the synagogues or where the Jewish people will meet first, and they tell them about Jesus. For they have that understanding, they have a grounding in the Old Testament scriptures. And they're saying, well, Jesus, he's a picture of the, the Passover lamb. Jesus, he's the, the suffering servant. And they're able to bring the, the scripture to them. And they go on this mission, Paul and Barnabas, and I think it's important. They've been serving the church in Antioch with others as well. And they go together. There's an aspect of a, of a team ministry here, isn't there? Paul and Barnabas just don't go on on solo tours. 
You know, like every good pop band, you know, they break up and they go on their solo tours to get a bit of money for themselves. That's not Paul and Barnabas. Although they're split up, they're creating new teams. And here they're joined, I think we're told in verse 5, with uh, John or, or John Mark. That's Barnabas' cousin who he's coming along maybe like an apprentice perhaps. But he disappears and that causes the fallout between Paul and Barnabas later. But Mark is restored uh, by the time Paul writes the letter to the Colossians. But this idea of being a team, it's very clearly a biblical pattern throughout, isn't it? In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out 72 and they go two by two, just like the animals under Noah's floating zoo. And here, it's maybe the, the, the people that maybe don't seem to go out like that are Peter and, and Philip seem to be on their own. But generally, and we see this in Paul's letters, he's always with people. He's always with fellow servants or fellow preachers as he travels or even imprisoned. And it's, it's wonderful. So in Titus, remember Titus is in Crete. We only finished that a short while ago. He's on his own. But by the end of Paul's little letter to Titus, he says that he's sending Artemis or Titius. In other words, Titus, you're not going to be here. I'm going to send you help. You know, there's wonderful examples, isn't there, of individuals going on to the mission field and do wonderful things. But sometimes individuals go and they go with other people. They meet other people out there in the mission field. Rarely is it just one on their own. Although, of course, it does happen. There's wonderful trailblazers like that. But generally, it's gifted or ordained people in, in pairs. You think our Presbyterian church, Billy Patterson, no one's daddy, and John would say, the two of them, down. The Lord did wonderful things. What's the benefits? Well, there's great support. An encouragement for one another is going to be that prayer. And the, the, the prayer for one another is going to be double the amount of work done if there's two rather than one. There's going to be different strengths and giftings. But sure, between the two, that's going to benefit the local church. And for Paul and Barnabas, this is a team effort. Always, it's the two of them working together. And here is maybe they even work through this island of Cyprus as they begin this journey. Maybe Barnabas... He was a bit of the tour guide as well. He able to point out to Paul these different places, maybe the different sites. I imagine the different synagogues as they worked their way around the island, you know. As they go past clock and say, well, there's a wonderful uh, synagogue there. It's been there for a couple of centuries and the people do good there. They go down the road, you know, there's where Rabbi Magahi used to, to, to preach there or Rabbi Knowles or whatever it might be. And Brown was able to say these people, all these different things. But ultimately they're there to work together. To serve faithfully with one another and to mm. one another and to their Lord. And what did they do? What, in this team ministry, what did they do? It was based around what? The word of God. Verse 5. They, when they arrived, they proclaimed the word of God. Maybe a bit harsh to say they went sightseeing. I, I, maybe they did, but they spent their time opening up God's word. They did what was the pattern for all the other apostles in the, in the book of Acts and beyond. That preaching was primary. Not miracles or prophecies or even dealing with social problems, but it's the priority of God's word. To be preaching in the synagogues. That these people would be converted and out of the result of their conversion to Christ, that there would be a fruit to their faith. That they would then tackle the social issues and there would be positive consequences in the culture. 
A good example of that is later in Ephesus where the, the people want to throw Paul out because so many people have been converted that they're not selling their idols anymore. That's what happens as God's people come to faith under God's word. As God's word speaks, there's going to be fruit and there's going to be evidence to that. And they work together, opening up God's word to do double the work, to split their time. That They're not having to sort out everybody in one go, but there's two of them able to work alongside one another to God's glory. Commission for their mission. And while they're on their mission, they meet with some opposition. Verses 6 through to 11. Inevitable, always inevitable in fact. And here in, in verse 6, it is we, we meet this character, Bar Jesus, who's the enemy. What do we know about him? Well, he's a Jewish magician. He's a false prophet. Elias means he's, he's, a, he's skillful. Or he, he's good trickery. He's good at trickery. And his name, what does his name mean? Bar Jesus, it means son of Jesus. But he is clearly an anti, isn't he? He's anti-Jesus. And this man he's a, has a great influence on the people in Cyprus. Even, not just through everybody, but through one person in particular. And it is the pro-council, the person who's in charge from Rome. In this island, Sergius Paulus. And what does he do? Well, as an enemy, he knows he's got the ear of the proconsul, the most important man on the island. He's got this influence, maybe this following around him. He's maybe claiming, well, I'm a son of Jesus. I'm, you know, Jesus has been, he is now gone. I'm the next one. I'm the next one you need to listen to. I'm the next one you need to follow. And he's this false prophet. But what does he do? Well, verse 7 and 8 we know that Sergius wants to listen. But what does Bar Jesus do? The enemy. Verse 8. But Alamias the magician. Opposed them. Seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Makes sense doesn't it? The false prophet would not want people to hear the, the real word of God. Or the real message. It's not a surprise that he opposed. And, and tried to keep them away. And tried to, to keep the, the proconsul from listening. Because it's a war, isn't it? It's clearly a war here, spiritual warfare. And it's the same in our world and lives, isn't it? There's people out there who don't want others to hear about Jesus. In whatever form it might be. We tell people, you don't, you don't need to read your Bible. It doesn't matter. They say, well, the, the, the church, that, that's ancient history. Or you just, you just be part of this and it'll be all Okay. Get your saved card and then it's sweet. You really don't want anybody to hear about Jesus. And they are, they, they might claim to be bar Jesus. They might be claimed to be sons of Jesus or sons of God. They might claim to know Jesus. But they're anti-Jesus. Because they don't want anybody to meet with Jesus. Does that make sense? If somebody says to us or to other people, you don't need to worry about Jesus. You don't need to learn about Jesus. You don't need to listen to Jesus and his word. They are anti-Jesus. So whether that be different churches or so-called churches, or you might say it's our education system, it might be all these different things. They don't want us to hear about Jesus. What are they? They're opposition. And here for, for Paul... Though this enemy is not afraid to speak up against them, neither should we. 
Because Paul launches into the defense in verses 9 and 10. And Paul, some of you would love him, he just says it how it is. Verse 9 and the verse 10. You son of the devil. Paul knows what the truth is in all of this. We are either children of the light or we are children of darkness. And Paul says, we don't want anybody to hear what we have to say. You're a son of the devil. It is clear and Paul, under the Holy Spirit, is able to just say this and to share this. He says that you're an enemy of all righteousness. You don't know what is even good. You're full of all deceit. What is Satan? He's the father of all lies. You're full of villainy. Will you not stop making the crooked, the straight path of the Lord? Will you not just stop it? You're making, saying the, the road straight, but you're taking down a different windy path. And Paul launches into his defense and he speaks up to this opposition. Maybe there's times for us to do that too. Leave that with you. And what happens is Paul speaks, well, this man, not just is he spiritually blind, but he's going to be physically blinded for a short time in verse 11. Paul says, the hand of the Lord's upon you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. We don't know what happens in the back of that. Maybe it is only for a short time, a week or two, or a day or two. Paul had experienced the darkness, do you remember? But in a spiritual sense, he saw the light. To hear this bar, Jesus, he is certainly in darkness. He probably remains in darkness. And Paul confronts the opposition, and ultimately, the opposition is punished and defeated. Because what does it all lead up to in verse 12? The conversion. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. See, Sergius Paulus believes, and history outside of Acts confirms that as well. And that's a great encouragement, isn't it, for them in this difficult place where they're worshiping Aphrodite, where people are following this magician, where the top man, the person who's in charge of all, who's an intelligent man, we're told, comes to faith. It's a great encouragement for them in this difficult place where there doesn't seem to be much fruit. In fact, Barnabas and Mark later go back to Cyprus. Mark leaves because he's so discouraged because what goes on in Cyprus because there's a lack and little fruit. What happens during this conversion? In verse 7, it begins really. This man of intelligence sought to hear the word of God. He was hungry to hear it. He wanted to know what they, want, they were talking about. He, he wanted to listen to, to what they had to say about this good news. And often that is how it begins in people's lives and hearts, isn't it? Where there's maybe something happens and they're unsettled. But there's that hunger, that desire to, to want to know more. To, to understand. And here Sergius Paulus is hungry to hear and well, as Christians, we ought to always be hungry to hear as well. But outside, there are people who are hungry to hear. And we need to, to go to them and find them and to tell people about Jesus. Tell them about Jesus. Because here, as they, Sergius Paulus is hungry to hear. Where have Paul and Barnabas spent most of their time? Preaching in the synagogues. They've been going out from synagogue to synagogue, from place to place preaching. But now it needs a, a different approach, doesn't it? 
Sergius Paulus isn't going to go to the synagogue. It's normal for them to go to the synagogues or even the city squares to preach. They might draw alongside and share with one another. But this time is a little bit different, isn't it? Because they confront head on the problem. Bar Jesus. They call him out for what he is. They point and say, well, that is the son of the devil. Do not listen to him. This is what we have. And there's a sense in which at times there needs to be a different approach, doesn't there? We mustn't be afraid to do so because Jesus is what we are about and Jesus is all that we have to offer. And that's all that Paul and Barnabas offers here. But they confront first, don't they? They confront the enemy so that people can hear about Jesus. And then the last thing about this conversion is that Sergius Paulus is amazed at the teaching. I think that's important, isn't it? The, the opposition has been blinded, but that isn't what convinces Sergius Paulus. Remember this magician, he could do tricks and strange things that got people's attention. But it was the teaching that astonishes them or brings the, uh, God, as God speaks to them through his word. That is what convinces this intelligent Sergius Paulus. Miracles grab attention and preaching brings conviction. See, we come across this often, whether it be in Jesus or the Pharisees, they ask for another sign. Jesus says, if I give you another sign, you would not believe. The people are more often in, in awe of Jesus' power and authority in his teaching and in his words rather than his miracles. It's because God speaks through his word. Here for Sergius Paulus, he had lots of different hurdles in the way, didn't he? He had this main man that was causing him, or trying to convince him to, to not listen there's a clear opposition in the road, but God took the opposition away. And it comes to our, even our own hearts. There's our own opposition. As we put our barriers up to, to prevent the arrows from God's word to, to penetrate our hearts that would change us. Or maybe we have deliberately, as we thought about in Luke's gospel, have hardened hearts and we just don't want to listen to God's word. God can take that opposition all time. So we can hear his word and be amazed at his teaching. God's word speaks in the face of opposition. So what does that mean for us? We don't give up, do we? We too were once opposed to God's word, but now we are on the, the, the team that triumphs. We don't give up on missions or other Christians' work. It's a battle, but who wins? Christ and his church. I don't know who won Wimbledon. Maybe you don't know either. But you ever one of those guys that won? They won. And only their name will be on the trophy. Yes, they have a team, but they don't get the accolade. Christ, he won the battle. He stomped Satan's head into that ground and took God's wrath so that we would triumph with him. It's not just Jesus that wins, but it is Christ and his church.